Today's reading is Judges, chapter 20, verses 1 through 11. Listen now to the word of the Lord. Then all the people of Israel came out from Dan to Beersheba, including the land of Gilead, and the congregation assembled as one man to the Lord at Mizpah. And the chiefs of all the people, of all the tribes of Israel, presented themselves in the assembly of the people of God, 400,000 men on foot that drew the sword. Now the people of Benjamin heard that the people of Israel had gone up to Mizpah. And the people of Israel said, Tell us, how did this evil happen? And the Levite, the husband of the woman who was murdered, answered and said, I came to Gibeah that belongs to Benjamin, I and my concubine, to spend the night. And the leaders of Gibeah rose against me and surrounded the house against me by night. They meant to kill me, and they violated my concubine, and she is dead. So I took hold of my concubine and cut her in pieces and sent her throughout all the country of the inheritance of Israel for they have committed abomination and outrage in Israel. Behold, you people of Israel, all of you, give your advice and counsel here. And all the people arose as one man, saying, None of us will go to his tent, and none of us will return to his house. But now this is what we will do to Gibeah. We will go go up against it by lot, and we will take ten men of a hundred throughout all the tribes of Israel, and a hundred of a thousand, and a thousand of ten thousand, to bring provisions for the people, that when they come they may repay Gibeah of Benjamin for all the outrage they have committed in Israel. So all the men of Israel gathered against the city, united as one man. The word of the Lord. Good morning. Uh, Welcome. Uh, Before I begin, just a quick uh, announcement. Uh, as you know, we're continuing with the, uh, the Giving Garden, uh, an opportunity for you to help support uh, both of our teams to Kenya and West Virginia. So I think the Giving Tree will be up for a couple more weeks. Uh, I counted this morning uh, 56 out of the 100 envelopes have been taken. So uh, I, I hope we can take the remaining 44 in the next couple of weeks and, and completely fill out the, uh, uh, the, the Giving Tree. Uh, also, you have other opportunities, as you know, uh, to buy T-shirts. Uh, later, you're going to hear about you can buy some chairs for the chapel uh, in Simba as well. And so there are a lot of different ways that you can support our teams and participate even if you can't go. And I hope you take um, uh, the advantage of that and, and really uh, support uh, our teams. Uh, let, let's pray together. Father, thank you for uh, this day that you have made. And we come uh, once again to hear your word uh, in the gathering of your people. We ask you to be present to speak your word uh, and help us to understand uh, what you would have of us and enable us through your spirit to obey. We ask in Christ's name. Amen. So this is now the ninth and last sermon uh, in the book of Judges. And these last three chapters, chapters 19, 20, 21, form an, unfortunately, a fitting conclusion to the entire book of Judges with some of the most horrific violence in all of scripture. It highlights what happens when there is no king, when God is not king, and everyone does what is right in their own eyes. Uh, So to set up our reading for today, just a quick background. Chapter 19, uh, I told our FG leaders last week that I think chapter 19 might be one of the most difficult and disturbing chapters in in the entire Bible. It's a very difficult chapter to to study. Um, And in it, an unnamed Levite, 
who's supposed to be a good guy, but who has a very questionable character, retrieves his runaway concubine, and then having made the unwise decision to start his trip late in the day, because he was partying all morning, they're forced then to make a stop because they can't reach home. And instead of stopping at a city that his servant recommends, he chooses instead to seek hospitality in the town of Gibeah in the territory of Benjamin. He's not welcomed there by the locals, but an old man who happens to be working and living there uh, from his own hometown invites him in. And then in a scene that is reminiscent of Genesis 19, the story of Lot and Sodom and Gomorrah, local thugs show up demanding to sexually abuse and humiliate the Levite. And again, like the story of Lot, the host tries to protect his male guest and tries to negotiate his protection by offering to these uh, thugs his own daughter and the man's concubine in his place. But the thugs refuse, and so then the Levite, in order to save himself, grabs his concubine and throws her out to be brutally assaulted throughout the night by these people in his place. And then somehow he's able to sleep through the night, gets up in the morning, and is ready to resume his journey as if nothing had happened. But then he discovers his concubine lying down at the front door, unresponsive. Without any words of comfort, without any sign of emotion or care, he simply places her on his donkey and heads home. And then, the further shock is that instead of giving her a proper burial, he cuts up her body into 12 parts and sends it throughout Israel and further desecrates her memory. It's, a, it's, a, it's an appalling story. I mean, it's, you, know, you read that and you go like, why is this even in here? Um, but as you heard in the scripture reading today in chapter 20, the tactic of the Levite is very effective. All the tribes of Israel, minus the tribe of Benjamin, gather to hear what's going on. It really is amazing and ironic. We're told 400,000 soldiers gather to consider this matter. This is by far the largest gathering of the tribes of Israel in the book of Judges. None of the other great judges could gather such an enormous army to, bear, uh, to battle the foreign powers that were oppressing them. But now, against one of their own tribes, everyone shows up, and we're told, as one man, unified, indignant, determined, and organized in a way that they had never been before to find out what's going on. And so this Levite, whose desecration, whose dismemberment, whose distribution of his concubine's body has led to this gathering, tells his version 
of the events. But now when we hear his telling, because we have read chapter 19, we know what really happened, and so we can kind of compare what he says, what he tells the people, to what we know that actually happened. And we can hear that he is reshaping the story for his own agenda. Listen to what he says here again. He begins by saying, I came to Gibeah that belongs to Benjamin. I'm my concubine to spend the night. He begins by making it sound as though this was a planned destination. He offers no background information. How he passed up the opportunity to stop in another city, nor does he take any responsibility for stopping there because he made the decision to start late in the day, knowing that they would have to make this kind of pit stop. He continues, and the leaders of Gibeah rose against me and surrounded the house against me by night. He accuses the leaders of Gibeah as if the city council sanctioned and executed what transpired. They didn't. We know it was the actions of a local group of thugs. It was not some sort of general or normal activity of the city approved by its leaders. He may have been simply the unfortunate victim of a heinous but random crime as anyone might experience in a city. We also know that he made no effort then to discuss this or to report it to the city leaders. He then says, they meant to kill me. This is a reasonable inference based on what we know happened. But the men that showed up did not say they wanted to kill him. Their stated intent was to sexually abuse him. By saying that they meant to kill me, he heightens now the threat against his own life. He then says, and they violated my concubine. He leaves out the fact that his host offered two women in his place, that he failed to make any effort to defend the women, that he remained silent throughout the ordeal, and that he was the one who actually threw her out to save his own skin. The narrator calls the Levite her husband, placing the responsibility of her care on him, but he always refers to her as his concubine and later as his servant, as if she's just simply property. And then he says, and she is dead. In chapter 19, the narrator never tells us that she died as a result of her attack, only that she fell and that she was unresponsive in the morning. The narrator leaves us, leaves open the possibility that maybe she didn't die but was unconscious from her injuries and that perhaps she then died on the journey or possibly even that her death resulted in the hands of the Levite. The Levite lays the blame of her death on her attackers, but based on everything else that he's done and said, we are right to be suspicious of his words. And he is outraged. He says, this should not have happened. What are we going to do about it? And I want to be very clear about this. The Levite did not show any emotion toward her when he found her in the morning. He never showed any signs of grieving or remorse about his 
lack of action in the events. He is not outraged that his wife has been violently murdered. He is outraged that violence has been committed against his property and his honor has been violated. In his telling of what happened, it's all about his loss and his shame. It's impossible to ignore his self-centeredness in his telling. I came to Gibeah, I and my concubine. The leaders of Gibeah rose against me and surrounded the house against me in the night. They meant to kill me and they violated my concubine. His argument is that they threatened him and that they violated what belonged to him. And because of what they did against me, they need to be held responsible and accountable. The outrage is not that a young girl has been mercilessly murdered. The outrage isn't that the Levite acted cowardly to save his own life. No, the outrage is that he, a man, a Levite, has been dishonored and that his concubine, his property, has been violated. His version of what happened is not questioned. It's unanimously accepted by the Israelites. No further investigation follows. No other witnesses are sought. The Levite servant and the old man could have been questioned to see if all the details were correct, but they don't. Because, well, certain people we tend to believe. There are groups of people that we tend to believe more readily than others. And even though it is a time of judges, and even though things are really messed up, because he's a Levite, because he's a man, he has enough social status to be believed at his word. You know, I know that, um, I know this is hard today. And I know you give me a lot of trust in the pulpit, and I take this responsibility very seriously. And I want you to know that that is why, as a rule, um, I almost always prepare a full manuscript that I read to you a Sunday morning. Um, I know it's not as exciting um, as preachers who preach without notes, who can kind of walk around and engage with you and so on. Uh, It's not that my memory is bad and I can't memorize a sermon, uh, although that's probably a part of it. Um, It's really my effort um, to be faithful in trying to protect you against my temptation to misspeak about God. I want to minimize my misspeaking about God and writing it down, working it through the week, and then sharing that with you at least removes the kind of blatant errors that will crop up if I just sort of speak uh, offhand. It also takes away, for me, the temptation to get kind of caught up in the moment, uh, you know, and say things that, shall we say, stretch the truth or exaggerate. Uh, I I know when I was younger, uh, I can recall times when I was was at a youth retreat, for example, and I'm speaking to the youth, and, you know, you kind of, it's night, right? We we sang the kumbaya, the lights are down, and everyone's kind of into it, and you start preaching, and the kids are like, they're loving it, and and you can just kind of get carried away in the moment. Now, sometimes you say, well, it's, 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 it's the work of the Spirit. Yeah, sometimes that is. But sometimes it's just emo- emotional manipulation. And, and it, that temptation is strong because like you, you, 
you want to like uh, effect change, so there's that good side of it, but then you also just want to be like, you know, say something that the kids will really grasp and you, you feel like you're being popular now, they're like they're listening to you. And so you can really get, get caught up in that moment. And so um, I, I'm, I'm trying to protect you uh, and myself uh, from those kinds of uh, things because I know that, that to talk about God, I mean, it's, it's, it's a very serious task uh, that I will have to answer for. Um, and so sometimes, as the Levite does, um, we always face the temptation, we always face the challenge of being manipulated or being moved by words and by emotional appeals. Like, we, we know this. And the scripture itself tries to protect the people by saying, you know, when you have a crime like this, it needs to be investigated and the evidence weighed. And just because everyone's sort of in agreement, just because the whole Israel, all of them, have been united, it doesn't mean that they're being obedient to God. People can be united for the wrong cause. It's not automatic. It's not automatic. And just because, you know, he's a Levite, we've got to trust him. No. I'm not suggesting, you know, you be skeptical of everything I say or anything like that. Um, but we, we need to weigh the words that we hear and the words that we're thinking in light of God's word and in light of God's character. And so the tribe of Israel here, unfortunately, they, they hear the story from the Levite and without any further consideration, without consulting God in any way, they decide to go to war. And the uh, <clears throat> rest of the chapter, if, if, you, if you want to read it, uh, is about the civil war. Uh, it takes stages in, in three battles, um, the third of which they end up ultimately uh, winning and basically wiping out, they decide, not only do they want to just defeat uh, the tribe, but they wipe out all the cities of Benjamin. They kill women, children, uh, everything. They completely decimate the entire tribe so that only 600 men from the tribe of Benjamin are left. That's it. It's, it's almost complete genocide. And then <clears throat> those 600 men, uh, what happens to them takes up the last chapter, chapter 21 in the book of Judges, and that'll be, uh, you guys can look at that uh, in small group uh, this week. Well, this is the end of Judges. We've reached the end. And I know some of you are glad that this is the end of Judges. Uh, a few of you told me that you've had enough of the book of Judges. <laughs> it's, it's a hard book. I know it is. Uh, it, it's been hard for me to preach. You know, this is not a text that I, oh, I can't wait to preach on this. Like, this is, this is it. This is the only time I'm probably going to preach uh, on this text. Um, you know, the, the book began optimistically, right? It began with hope. It began with the story of Othniel, remember, the ideal judge, and his wife, Aksa. They set the, the paradigm for what a good judge is, what a good family life looks like. He was brave. He delivered his people from their enemies. He reigned, he judged so that there was peace in the land, so there was rest in the land. And then his wife, Aksa, you know, she, she has a name. She speaks. She has her father looking out for her interests. She has a husband who cares for her, who's an honorable man. And she herself is able to take initiative to further bless her own family for which she is rewarded. And then over 21 chapters, everything slowly collapsed in a downward spiral so that now we end up with a Levite, a cowardly anti-judge, whose dysfunctional family squabbles has ultimately resulted in genocide, followed by further war atrocities.
I mean, it's just a complete reversal of what we saw in the beginning of Judges. And the, and the, and the thing about this is, for the Israelites, for the Israelites, this could look like success. Right? The nation gathered as one man, they go to battle, and after a couple of initial defeats, they win. They defeat the tribe of Benjamin. But it's, it's not a victory at all. God did not send, God did not empower a judge to deliver them. This is God's judgment and God's justice against Israel. God allows Israel to do as they see fit, to do what is right in their own eyes, and slaughter one another, and in so doing, they providentially fulfill God's judgment against them. This was not God's hope for them, but this is the way it has turned out. And, and I think in some ways, you know, the, the hope that I see in this, the small hope that remains, is that despite all the idolatry, despite all the apostasy of the Israelites, God has still found a way at the end of Judges, after all this horror, God has still found a way to preserve his people. There, there's still Israel at the end of the book of Judges. Right? They, they should have been completely obliterated. But somehow, even now, there is a preservation of his people. And it points to the next chapter in their story that, in fact, God is not done with them, that God's plan of redemption has not been thwarted. And, and that's the small hope that remains. But for now, for today, it, it's, again, it's just a sad, shocking, sickening story and there is no tidy and happy ending that I could share with you today. Uh, you have to please come back next week um, for a more hopeful message. We, right? But this, this is still the word of God, and it is the word for us today. And so for me, I think this is just, again, another firm warning. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 10.6, the same thing could happen to us. The same thing could happen to us. We must be on guard so that we never get caught up in wanting our own ways as they did. So they're an example for us. All the Levites were twisting. We we see it. It should not surprise us. All his self-centeredness should not surprise us. All the violence by so many should not surprise us. The Bible does not shy away from the reality of our lived experience. We should not be surprised that people do evil things against one another and that innocent people suffer. We know this. These stories demonstrate once again that when people do not believe in any God, when there is no law, when people do not believe in anything beyond themselves, then as uh, the Christian novelist Dostoevsky and the atheist uh, Nietzsche, philosopher, uh, philosopher Nietzsche has said, when there is no law, when there is no God, everything is permissible. When there is no God, when there is no law, everything is permissible. And when everything is permissible, everything is permissible. Without some higher authority to appeal to, the human tendency is for everyone to do what is right in their own eyes. And in that regard, our world today is no different from any other time in the history of the world, including the time of the judges. We're in the same boat.
Now, I've heard, you know, some people think this is a good place to be for us as, as humanity. We are free to do what we want, to do what we think is right, that we can build a uh, community based on commonly shared humanitarian values without any appeal to any sort of, you know, God or revelation or higher authority. But history has made it clear over and over and over again that this is simply not true. It simply is not true. When all is permissible, it, it, it just, people will not, people will not do that. People will not rise to the occasion. And I know for myself that this will never, ever work. One of the things that I know with absolute certainty today is that when there is no king, I am king. When there is no king, I know with absolute certainty that I am king. And I'm old enough now to know that I don't want to be king of my life or of anyone else's life. And I know you don't want me to be king of your lives. A person who has no higher authority has only himself. You are the final authority. You are the final say. The Levite didn't have God as his final authority, even though he's supposed to be you know, a priest teaching people about God. God is not his king. He's never upset that people are bowing down to idols. He shows no concern for the fact that the, the, uh, the house of God in Shiloh has been desecrated. He does not judge himself for having a concubine. He shows no concern for her death in any meaningful way. He only cares about himself because he's the king. Because there is no king. And his actions result only when something bad happens to him. When the sins of others affect him, he gets on this campaign of self-righteousness. Right? I mean, if we're honest about this, this is all of us. We all care about wrongs committed against us than we care about wrongs committed against God or against others. That's our nature. People can get very interested in holiness when their own toes have been stepped on. I don't care if you steal from God, but if you steal from me, then I will make you pay, and I will call upon God to make you pay. And for me, this is it's a twofold warning. I think when we, when we face evil, we, we have to respond. We have to respond. We ought to be outraged. We ought to be pained by the suffering of others. There's no question about that. But as the Levite and the Israelites demonstrate, it's very easy to get caught up in the wrong emotions and to move entirely away from God's character and God's purposes for our lives. I know that when I know I have moved away from God's will for my life, when my anger, when my sense of justice leads me to a disproportionate response. I know that I'm no longer in God's will when my response, my anger, my indignation and outrage at injustice results in a disproportionate response. Response. For example, <clears throat> one of the things that I learned in premarital counseling is that nearly everyone struggles with road rage. 
It's a weird thing to learn, right? <clears throat> think about how angry you get when you're driving. When someone around you isn't driving quite up to your standards. Now, how many of you would say that you are an above average driver? Show of hands. <laughs> Be honest. How many of you think you're below average? The below the national average? Two honest people. Right? You know, I, I was thinking about okay, who are the people that I regularly get to sit in the car with when they're driving? And based on that anecdotal evidence, I feel like I'm above the average. <laughs> however, however, if, if I'm totally honest about my driving skills, I can say that I, I think now, at this point in my life, I am below average. I'm, I'm willing to admit that. Because uh, I, I see that this is not to frighten you when you're driving, but I can see some of my reactions are a little bit slower, and my night vision is not good, and so on, okay? And so I know, I mean, I know I make mistakes on the road. And if I don't know, my wife tells me, so I know, <laughs> right? And I know other drivers get angry with me when I'm driving. And I understand why they get angry, right? Because I'm endangering their lives, their property. I, I get it because of my incompetence. So it's understandable to some degree. Still, still, does my failure to get out of the left lane quickly enough so that the car who's behind me, who's doing 90, can just go a little bit quicker? And as they're passing by, I see their faces just red, screaming, mouthing words that I can't hear, but I know what's going on. Like, is that an appropriate response? Is that a proportionate response to what I've done wrong? It seems to me that it's a little over. Right? If a toddler punches another toddler, a timeout might be a reasonable measured response. But you're not going to toss that child in jail for three years. Right? A man steals a mouthful of bread. You imprison, you imprison him for, for five years. That's disproportionate. That is not measured. And I know when I do that, when I respond in that kind of way, then I know that I've moved away from God's will. The Bible has something called the law of retaliation, uh, commonly known as you know, an eye for an eye. And people tend to misuse this to justify an act of revenge. He hit me, so I'm going to hit him back. But the law, an eye for an eye, was there to limit violence so that it doesn't escalate out of control. If someone steals a sheep from you, then you have a right to get another sheep back, not a dozen cows. You get one eye for one eye. I mean, that's that's the intent behind it, to limit the kind of escalation that we are wont to do, right? You punch me, so I'm going to punch you back harder. A group of thugs committed a horrendous crime. There ought to be justice. They ought to be punished, no question. But what would be just? We could argue about what that might look like, but I think we could all agree that a civil war with the deaths of 
tens of thousands of people, the death of 26,000 people, men from the tribe of Benjamin, as well as countless tens of thousands of women and children, the entire decimation of an entire tribe is a disproportionate response. They were way out of line, and yet no one stepped up to say, this is not right. Disproportionate response is a sign that I am the king. Any small perceived slight against me, against my honor, will be responded to, will be answered by something much worse to make sure that you learn your lesson so that you never mess with me again. It does not seek peace. It does not pursue reconciliation. It seeks only to dominate, to assert authority. And so, you know, when you're, when you're filled with anger at some injustice, and, may, and you are, you've got a right to be angry. You've been wronged. I, I get that. But that first impulse that you have to retaliate is going to be disproportionate to the crime that has been committed against you. Because when you're angry, you are physiologically unable to have a measured response. That's why, you know, everyone tells you, you know, when you're angry, you got to slow down. You got to cool off. You got to wait. Because in that state, you cannot think straight. You literally, physiologically cannot think straight. And on the other hand, you know, you have this too where, you know, last week I preached about the Danites and how the Danites attacked and destroyed an entire peaceful, unsuspecting city. There was no outrage. Right? This is disproportionate response at the other end. How come nobody got upset that an entire defenseless city got wiped out? If you're going to get upset about the murder of one defenseless girl, and rightly you should, Shouldn't you then also get angry, even more angry, that an entire city has been wiped out? Shouldn't the people have also been upset with the Levite and the, and the old man for their part in these crimes? You know, I, I feel like the temptation to get angry for me in the last several years has just gotten worse. I feel like I'm a reasonably calm person, um, and anger is not something I, I don't think I really struggled. Maybe I just repressed it. I don't know. But I, I noticed myself, the temptation to get angry, to be indignant and outraged um, has been growing uh, the last few years. And, and this is a, it's an important word for me that when, when my sense of injustice and my, my outrage is just brimming, um, I realize that it's almost always disproportionate. And so when I see that, and when I also see that I don't get angry about things that I should get angry about, it means that, it's, it's, it points, it tells me, I'm not right with God. It tells me I'm not right with God. That my sense of justice is not in line with God's. And, and so it's, it's a warning, it's a good warning. And the other thing I would say is this, that I know that I've moved away from God's will when my anger is not only disproportionate, but when it is misdirected. Most of the time, my anger and my sense of justice is not only uh, disproportionate, but it's 
at the wrong things. It's misdirected. Because most of the time, my anger is, and my sense of justice, is concerned more about me and how I've been wrong than it is about the wrong that has been committed against others or against God. Right? The Levite precipitated this mess because he felt that he had been wronged. It's, you know, it's, it's very much like the stories of honor killings you hear uh, in the news today. You know, um, these stories are so common, it's, it's, it, should, it, should, it should shock us and, and anger us. Right? You hear about a bride, for example, who, who overcooks her beans you know, for dinner, a young bride, and, and her husband beats her, and so she runs away, and then her father and her brother kill her because she's brought shame and dishonor to the family. I mean, that, that's insane because somehow the abusive husband's honor matters more, and so this is called, it's, it's, it's considered honor, it's an honor, it's crazy. It's crazy, right? Our sense of honor has become so twisted that a girl gets murdered and to restore honor, not for her, right? But for the man, um, it's, it's, it's the same situation that we face today that the Levite faced in his day. All of Israel goes in for this revenge killing. But it's not for the woman who has been wronged. No one cares about her. It's the honor of the Levite that has to be restored. It's, it's a misguided sense of justice that leads to further destruction. And I think we would do well to think of others before ourselves. You know, that'll keep, keep us away from a lot of shameful acts. The pursuit, this pursuit of protecting and restoring one's honor, it's another way, again, of just saying, I'm, I'm king. My reputation, my honor, my status is what's really important. But when we live this way, it only leads to misery and destruction for ourselves and for those around us. If nothing else, the book of Judges teaches me that when there is no king, when everyone does what is right in their own eyes, when I am king, there is no hope. There is only misery and death. You know, those of you uh, with children in the kids' ministry know that their year-long theme this year is Romans 12.10. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. And and Pastor Dohi simplified it to put others before yourself. Put others before yourself. I mean, that's a great word to shape your life by. So many wrongs would be eliminated if we live that way. Put others before yourself. That is not something that happens at the end of Judges. No one put anyone before them. What the book points to then for us is that we need another way. We need another way from the pattern that the Judges took. And as Christians... We have another way. We follow the one who did not choose honor for himself, but one who put others ahead of himself. We follow the one 
who responded to evil with outrage, but with just compassion for those who suffer, and not because of some misguided sense of personal honor that had been damaged. We follow the one who, though he was in the very form of God, chose to empty himself and took on the form of a servant and became obedient unto death, even death on the cross. You know, it's amazing because, you know, Jesus in his life, he never sought honor for himself. It's an amazing thing. In a a culture where honor was everything, he never pursued it. He lived more honorably than anyone else, but he refused all approval from the elite, the educated, the wealthy, the popular. He never wanted to be a part of the in-group, religious, social, economic, or otherwise. Even after performing miracles, even reaching at the, at the height of his popularity when crowds wanted to make him king, he ran away. He didn't want that honor. He didn't even try to fulfill the honor of fulfilling people's expectations of a Messiah. His entire life was not about protecting or pursuing his own honor, but about fulfilling God's will and seeking God's honor. Not my will be done, but yours even if it leads to the cross. He took on dishonor and shame because he knew that God is king. That's the only way, that is the only way to break this downward cycle in the book of Judges. And thank God, thank God that he did. This is not the last word. Thank God that the book of Judges is not the last word for us. There is another way. We are not doomed. Thank God that God has found another way for us. Let's pray together. Lord, we, <clears throat> we thank you for uh, this word. That this word, too, is a part of your word. It's a hard word for us. We are reminded that you are a God who seeks justice. That you want us to be moved toward justice. But you also warn us that unless we proceed in accordance with your word, that we are apt to do it according to our will in accordance with ourselves as judge. So Lord, please help us to always be under your word, to make righteous judgment in light of your word, in light of your character, in light of what you have done for us, to follow the example of Jesus We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.